If you have a Bible tonight, we're in Acts chapter 21. We're going to pick up at verse number 15 in just a little bit. Um, We uh, began to cover Paul's journey that uh, is recorded from Acts 21 to Acts 28. Paul, as he has been planting churches all throughout the book of Acts, um, the church has been growing under Peter, under John, under Philip, under Stephen. Then Paul came along and joined the church and then became a leader in the church, uh, planted churches all across the uh, parts of Asia into Europe, um, broke that barrier, you know, went through the breach that was the Roman Empire. And Paul had his heart set on getting to the Roman, the the imperial city, to Rome itself. Uh, But before he would get there, he could not uh, end his days, and he knew his days were coming to an end. He could not end his life on earth without giving one last ditch effort to reach the Jewish people with the gospel. Um, His heart burned for them. He had a great burden for the Jewish people. And that really is the setup for the last part of Acts. Paul, um, on his way to Rome, and he doesn't tell us that explicitly, but we know how it ends. On his way to Rome, Paul's going to go back to Jerusalem, which will end up getting him to Rome by an unconventional way. But on his way to Rome, Paul goes back to Jerusalem and he has his desire, his goal is to reach as many of the Jewish people as possible with the gospel. So we covered uh, last week, uh, Paul made a decision and he was unwavering in that decision. Um, Everybody he came in contact with through that series, uh, through that trip back from uh, Ephesus to Jerusalem, every church he stopped at, every group he met with, they all said, Paul, you don't have to do this. You've given more than any of us. You've done more than any of us. You are the most sacrificial, giving, generous, you know, person we know. You don't have to do this. God does not expect you to do this. We all know what will happen if you go back. But uh, Acts chapter 21 verses 13 and 14, Paul kind of puts an end to the attempts to stop him when he says to the people that are trying to stop him, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So they tell Paul, hey, you're, you're, it's going to cost you. You could be arrested. You could die. And Paul said, I'm ready to do whatever I've got to do to reach people with the gospel, especially my Jewish brothers and sisters. And verse 14, we ended with, it says, when he would not be persuaded, we see. So Luke, the writer, Timothy, Titus, the whole gang, the group of men and women that were in his missionary team, the disciples that were meeting with him at this church, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. They said, Paul, you're in God's hands. And what better hands are there to be in, right? But you're in God's hands. We are trusting that God's will will be done. Now, this is a firm summation of Paul, the minister, and Paul, the man. He was determined to pour himself out for the gospel. He was determined to pour himself out for those that he loved. He did not see it as a great sacrifice. He said it was worth it, every bit of it. It was worth it to reach people, to win some to the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul had an incredible longing for the Jewish people, his brothers and sisters uh, of, of his heritage. Now, it's well documented that the Jewish people were very nationalistic, not a bad thing. They were just very proud of their heritage. Uh, And all the Jews were raised to be very zealous and very proud of their heritage and of their nation. Now, if you read the Old Testament, um, and of course we see this in the New Testament and the Gospels when Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders, uh, the Jewish people were very patriotic. They were very proud of their nation. And because their faith was tied into their nationality, um, it was easy to see how they became as passionate for their nation 
as they were their God because they could not see the two separate from each other. That to be a believer was to be a Jew and to be a Jew was to be a believer. So they didn't see their faith as being open to other people. They didn't think it was a Gentile thing. They knew that God was only their God and they didn't believe it was going to be anybody else's. And Paul was no exception. Uh, Paul had this radical understanding of the Jewish faith and he was full of pride for his country and for his people, for his heritage, and of course for his religion, which is why, if you remember, when he first heard about Christianity, he was aggressive and hostile towards it. Now, we don't have to uh, think too much. Paul uh, was, was a villain against the church. He was an enemy of the church because of his Jewish pride, of his Jewish heritage. He believed that it threatened what the Jews had to themselves. He believed it was against the Jewish law. So he did everything within his ability to stop it even killing Christians and beyond. So now there was no excuse for that. Paul would later renounce it completely, but Paul still had a great love for Israel. So even after he became a Christian, that Jewishness could not be removed from Paul. That passion for Israel and that dedication to his Jewish brothers and sisters was still there. And now that he was a Christian, he saw the bigger picture. He saw the full picture. He saw the complete picture now that he understood where it was always going in the whole, you know, from the very beginning, he understood that God's will all along was to start the church and to, was u- to use Jesus to broaden the, the movement. Now that he knew the bigger picture and the full picture, he had an even greater passion and an even greater burden to reach his people with the gospel. And, and Paul's reasoning was very similar to the, to the thesis behind Matthew's gospel. To, to Paul, being a Christian... And following Jesus is the logical step for a Jew to take. Now, Paul didn't arrive at that initially. Again, he was against Christianity. He was persecuting people that followed Jesus. But once he figured it all out, once he saw the full, uh, the, the full, the full picture, he thought, hey, to be a Christian, to follow Jesus is the logical step that you should take as a Jewish person because Jesus fulfilled the law. Christianity was the full realization of Judaism, and now we've covered this, uh, but just for the record, I want to make sure that we have the verses in this message. If you want to take some notes, you can kind of connect the dots. Um, This is the message that the Bible presents from front to back. Um, The Old Testament predicts it. The New Testament presents it very clearly, and and Paul tried his best to kind of show his Jewish brothers and sisters that this was always God's plan, and it's even written in their Old Testament, in their Bible. Jeremiah chapter 31 The Bible says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. And again, if we've studied Jeremiah, this is the portion in the Old Testament where the prophets are telling the Jews that this covenant is not working and God's going to do something new in the future. And of course, the New Testament is that covenant. Jesus is the one who brought about this new covenant, this new way. Unlike the previous covenant that was based on law and based on works, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So again, a relationship-based covenant, a covenant where God was gonna put something in us that we could not get on our own, a covenant that God was gonna do a work for our hearts, not based on the work of our hands. Rooted in this one thing, God says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. 
So no longer will they bring sacrifice after sacrifice to the temple, hoping and praying that I forgive their sins. But once and for all, I will do something that will wash everybody's sin away. And that is the fulfillment of the Jewish law. That is what brings it all together. Of course, Jesus did that. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. And what does he mean by that? He's telling us, I didn't come to get rid of Genesis to Malachi. I've come to fulfill. I've come to finish. I've come to complete it. I've come to give it all its desired end. I've come to put a bow on it. I've come to fulfill the old. It's undone without what I'm about to do. And when he dies on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. He completes the work of God, previewed in the old, finished in the new. And that's why Paul in Galatians chapter three says this. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. So this is why Paul wanted to get to the Jewish people one more time. Even though they rejected the gospel again and again and again, even though the, the, you know, the Jewish religious leaders threatened, you know, they killed Stephen and, and they threatened to kill more Christians and Christians were scattered, Paul wanted them to understand that the law was just a guardian. It had been replaced by a savior. Paul wanted so badly for the Jews to get this. And of course, a lot of Jews did get it. Most of the Christians in the early first century were Jewish. But again, so many of them, most of them did not join the church. Most of them worked against it. And again, Paul was one of those who worked violently against it. But now that Paul was an advocate, perhaps the greatest advocate that the church has ever known, his heart beat with great passion to win more Jews to Christ. If you read Romans 9 and Romans 10, the whole, both chapters are all about Paul just praying for the Jewish people to get it. He says in Romans 9, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Essentially, he's saying, I would suffer for them if it meant the people, the brothers, my kinsmen getting this right. He goes on in, in Romans 9 and he says, the Jewish people, they, they had all the covenants. They were given all this and it was laid out right in front of them. Yet they missed it. He says, my brother, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. They've got all the information, but they just don't have the heart for God and, and Paul believed that he could get to them if he just had one more chance. So that explains why Paul could not be persuaded against going to Jerusalem. And that leads us to what could be called the consequences of his relentlessness, which is going to be spelled out for us in the rest of chapter 21 and throughout chapter 22. Now, what is repeated throughout Acts is a clear reminder that Paul, from his conversion, was always designated as the apostle to the Gentiles. Not that he would not deal with the Jews, but was to emphasize that God was going to take this Jewish man who was very much a religious Jew in, in all of his upbringings and all of his hair, all of of his, you know, training, he was the most Jewish man on the planet, and God was going to make him the ambassador for those that were not Jewish. It cannot be overstated how incredible that is, and we'll talk about plenty of incredible things tonight to go on top of that, but even though he was sent to the Gentiles, he could not and would not be willing to give up on the Jewish people. He just would not 
take no for an answer. Very similar to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said all along that the religious leaders would reject him. He told them in advance, you know, you guys won't believe in me. He told parables because they, you know, he didn't want them to understand. But all along, Jesus continually would talk with them and would eat with them and would go to them because he just could not give up on them. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, showing that his strong words against the people were from a place of love. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So even though Jesus you know, knew they would reject him, he still had a love for them that was just you know, beyond um, comprehension. So here we have Paul taking a similar path to Jesus. Remember last week we talked about how Paul and Jesus are going down similar roads. Jesus, you know, Paul is following that same road that Jesus went. He goes to Jerusalem, even though he knows he's going to die there. Jesus did that. He said, I got to go. I must go. Paul likewise says, I must go. So here we have Paul walking that similar path, which reflects the heart of service and sacrifice that every disciple should display. And, and now, because there's a lot of exposition in this section, we're not going to read every verse uh, from 21 to, the 20, to 22, um, but we're going to summarize what comes directly after uh, where we left off. So not going to read verses 15 through 20, but I'll summarize it for you really quickly. Paul meets with the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, and the leaders of the church, and they're worried that here comes Paul, and he's got a bunch of Gentiles with him, and they're about to go to the temple to pray and worship because the Jews, you know, Paul still had a heart for the Jews, and he still wanted to go to the temple because he knew the bigger picture, and he knew what it was a representative of. Um, Paul, the, James says, listen, Paul, if you go there with the Gentiles, they're going to stone you. They're going to kill you. You, you. you can't do this. So, you know, and, and I know I can't convince you otherwise. I know I'm not going to get you to not go so here's the deal there's some group of people that are about to go and pray at the temple so why don't you join them you know can you kindly tell the gentiles to just kind of stick in the shadows because we don't want to make a big mess and you don't want to get yourself in, in you know directly in a mess so they come up with a plan paul is going to go to the temple because they just couldn't keep him from going uh and he was going to accompany some of those that were going to go and go and pray and, and make a vow not a sacrifice but sort of a just a ritual that they had um and it turns out that was not a good idea Paul knew it wasn't a good idea, but he went anyway. Uh, it wasn't a good idea. It blows up pretty quickly, and Paul is spotted. There's some Gentiles with him, and a massive riot breaks out. Down in verse number 30, Luke tells us this. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So they shut the temple doors, and they dragged Paul into the courtyard, and they are, you know, it's like dogs with a piece of meat. They are anxious to finally put an end to this guy who betrayed them, once was one of them, now left them. They want to put him uh, to an end. So this gets the attention of the Roman Tribune, um, because ever since what happened in 30 AD, Rome's been keeping an extra close eye on Jerusalem because of the riots around Jesus, because of all the speculation about Jesus being a king and starting a movement to take over Rome, all the rumors about him being a Messiah and what that meant. Rome had been keeping a closer eye 
on Jerusalem. So they had, um, not only did they have the governor there, like, you know, that was still in Pilate's office, but they had established a Roman tribune um, who basically would just set up uh, different watch posts all throughout the city and, and would be in these little watchtowers and would just look down into the streets in case a mob would break out and in case a riot would start. So a Roman tribune, uh, the commander of a special group of soldiers put in place to monitor the temple, the Roman tribune notices this riot and he quickly comes down from his post and they begin to call everybody um, to, to a place of, of calm so they can get an idea of what's going on. And verse 31 tells us what happens. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison or the tribune that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So here they are. They are just, you know, just wailing on him with whips and with clubs. And they are, you know, we have to imagine Paul is, you know, it was his close to dying if they would have kept beating him, right? They are taking it out all their anger on him. And when the Roman centurion shows up and the soldiers show up, they back away because they were afraid of Rome. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. Now the commander, the, you know, he didn't know Paul from, from anybody else, but he assumes this guy's a troublemaker. He assumes this guy is, is trying to incite riots or, rebel, or rebellion or revolt. So they immediately bound him in chains uh, because they thought he was the reason why all this had started. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the turmoil, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. So they take him into the place that the soldiers stayed uh, and they were trying to figure out what to do with him. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So uh, eventually the mob says, you know what? We don't care what's going to happen. They begin to try to get Paul back from the Romans. So they begin to, you know, kind of storm the, the, the stairway and begin to pull at Paul, trying to get him from the soldiers. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. So again, they, they want to kill Paul. They are so dead set against this man um, living another day. Now, again, you, you got to see the similarities here, which I think Luke wants us to see more than anything. The Gospel of Luke, you had Jesus, the Jewish mob, you had Pilate who was overseeing all of it. Here you have Paul, a Jewish mob, a Roman tribune, a Roman commander overseeing all of it. So again, you got to see the similarities. The way that Jesus went, Paul is in his footsteps. This is a similar scene. Remember in the Gospels, they cried, crucify him. Here they cry, away with him or put him to death. Now, the tribune does not know Paul, but he's familiar with a recent troublemaker who was half Jewish, half Egyptian, uh, and he had led a revolt, and, and he assumes Paul's that guy, and, and he thinks, well, they're just trying to stop this guy from coming back because they're afraid Rome's going to come and you know, stomp them all if, if this guy gets another chance to, to start a rebellion. So we're going to jump into the story from here on. Uh, the tribune and the Roman soldiers, they have protected Paul on a platform that leads into the barracks. So they've got this little platform that they could address the crowds from. And Paul's up there protected by these soldiers. Uh, meanwhile, the mobs have surrounded the base uh, of the platform and are packed into the city square. 
And Paul is going to make a very odd request. And, and you got to see, you got to understand, Paul could have been taken straight into the barracks and would have been examined. And most likely he would have been released by the Roman officials because he was innocent. He was just a normal guy going to the temple. He did not incite a riot. He did not start any trouble. So had Paul not asked this question, they would have took, taken him into the barracks, they would have calmed out the mobs, then they would have brought Paul to trial and they would have examined him and much like Pilate with Jesus, they would have said, let this guy go. Paul knew that he, Paul knew what was going on all along though and he knew where all this was going. So part of his plan Seeing that he was protected by the Roman guards, seeing that he had the audience of the Jews at the base of the platform, seeing that they were now calm and quiet because Rome had threatened them and they had ceased from the yelling and the rioting, Paul figured that they would stick around to see what Rome was going to do with him. So Paul is going to make a very strange request that will just prolong his sentencing, but that's okay because his goal all along was to preach the gospel to the Jews. Look at verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks. So this is code word for Paul was about to be taken to a safe place. He said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? And of course he spoke Greek. So that's what made the commander kind of, you know, caught him off guard. Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? So he thinks Paul is this Egyptian guy that came back from the wilderness. And, and he, Paul says, no, no, no. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicily, a citizen of no mean country, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul, talking in Greek so the Jews wouldn't understand him, Paul, in Greek, talks to the commander and says, hey, can you please command the audience long enough and give me a chance to speak to them? And the guy's like, what, what, why? They wanted to kill you. Why do you want to talk to them? They were literally trying to beat you. They were about to kill you had I not showed up. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Now we'll get into what that's all about. But just, I want you to wrap your minds around this if you can. Paul Ask for a chance to address the Jews because he wasn't going to quit believing that he could get through to them, that God could get through to them. Do you see that? Paul wasn't going to give up on God's grace reaching this people. Now, I want to read the next two verses as Luke records Paul's testimony Again, it says he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And then he goes on to speak. Now, Luke wants us to understand that Paul talking in Hebrew was a big deal. Now, in these days, the universal language or the language, the, the, the language that all the, the Roman Empire, all that lived in the Roman Empire, most of them could understand a very common form of Greek. Um, most of them spoke in Aramaic, which was kind of a blended version of Hebrew. But Paul speaks to them in Hebrew, which again, only the Jews would have understood because even those that were visiting from, from other places would have spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, the natural language, the pure language of Hebrew was kind of a dead language at this point, but they learned it and they read the Old Testament, you know, through that language. So when Paul speaks to them in Hebrew, 
that gets their attention and it shows them that Paul really wants them to listen to him. Now, they've already made their mind up. They don't like this guy. They think he's a traitor. They think he's committed treason against the faith. They think he's a blasphemer. But Luke, the way Luke writes this, it makes it seem like when Paul spoke to them in their native language, it meant something to them or it did something or it got their attention in a way that it maybe would not have got otherwise. So here's something I think we, we got to talk about for a few minutes. This shows a sense of sincerity on Paul's part. It shows a notion of sincerity that I think is so crucial to every one of our attempts to reach people. That I think sincerity is the most important virtue when we are trying to get through to people. If we are not sincere, people will see through that in a minute and they will tune us out even quicker. More importantly, fake sincerity is worse than no sincerity. Do you see this? That Paul was sincerely trying, I mean, if, if it wasn't already obvious, he went when they told him not to go. He knew what was going to happen. He went anyway. He's about to be taken to safety. He says, hey, can I speak to these people? You really want to talk to these people? Yeah, I really do. Paul had a sincerity like none other. And I think that we as Christians lack sincerity so much, especially in really where it matters most, in our relationship towards others, in our posture towards others, in the way we treat and address others, especially those that might be against us or may not be our most favorite people, the people that we really want to be with. Sincerity when it comes to reaching the people that God wants us to reach is crucial. But sincerity is not something we can fake. Sincerity stems from a genuine or from a clear awareness of God's grace towards us and a genuine love for others. This is where sincerity comes from. So sincerity, again, we can't pretend to be sincere. Sincerity is the overflow of a clear awareness of God's grace towards me and a genuine love for others. That's where sincerity comes from. You, again, sincerity is the overflow of these two things, an awareness of God's grace and a love for all people. Let me go ahead and address this because this is so important. And a lot of churches just don't want to deal with this because it might hurt our feelings, but this is something we need to talk about. A lot of Christians struggle with sincerity because we're, most of the time we hang out with Christians, we grow up with Christians, we only go to church with Christians, so we never really know what it's like to deal with people who aren't Christians. And when we do deal with them, we have a hard time understanding why they are the way they are. As Christians, we struggle with sincerity and we need to be aware of this and we need to be honest about this. We need to be honest and we'll talk about what else we need to do with it. But first of all, we need to be honest that a lot of us, and maybe it's just me, but I have a hunch somebody else might raise their hand and say, hey, this is me too. A lot of us, we don't have a clear awareness of God's grace towards us. You know why? Because we were raised in church and we are very religious. I'm not saying that's bad, but it's just true. We're very religious. We've been raised in church. We sin just like everybody else, but we do so in a refined and delicate way that it isn't obvious or egregious like the rest of those people. And for that reason, we are not aware of God's grace for us and what it meant for God to save us and what it took for God to save us. 
And as a result, we don't have a genuine love for other people because our relationship with God is not rooted in love for him because we don't realize what he's done for us. You see that? Because a lot of us, our relationship with God is based on what we do for him. Now, we'll sing Amazing Grace, and we'll say that we were saved by grace like everybody else. But a lot of us, if we're being honest, and I just want to be honest tonight because we need to be. A lot of us, if we're being honest, our relationship with God is really about what we do for him and what we've brought to him and what we've not done you know, against him. And that causes us to be very unaware of grace, and it causes us to lose love for others. This is the difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus. This is just clearly the difference. And I think this is going to help us examine where we stand with God. There's hope tonight. Don't worry. There's hope. Think about the difference between Cain and Abel in that very early story, the earliest of stories in the the Old Testament, Genesis 4. One brought the work of his hands, Cain, right? The other brought the sacrifice of an animal. Now, what is the significance in that? God, when Adam and Eve sinned, what is Genesis at the end of Genesis? It says God clothed them. You know what God did for them? He sacrificed an animal and dressed them in the animal skin and he showed them the only thing that's gonna cover your sin is my grace and my love and my mercy. So God clothed them. So what does Abel do? Understanding what God did for his parents, learning from his parents what God did for them, Abel brings a lamb and sacrifices it to God because Abel knows it's by God's grace that I have a place in this world. Whereas his brother brought the work of his hands. Abel knew his standing with God was never going to be based on anything that he did. God reacted so swiftly against Cain because that was his foundation. And if our foundation is what we've done, all that's built on top of it will be wrong. So that's why God was so aggressive against Cain. And he says, the devil's crouching at the door and, and, and sin is trying to, to snare you. That's why God was so aggressive and so you know, quick whenever Cain brought the fruit of his hands. This is something that lifelong Christians and devoted church members must be aware of. And I talk about, it, I talk about this to us tonight because we are the people that most struggle with this. This is the reason why God allows trials and suffering to come in our lives because it makes us reliant on him and it breaks those false foundations that we build. Sometimes we resist the work he's doing in us and we build these facades of sufficiency, but we need to be quick to confess our weaknesses and we need to be quick to rest in him so that we might gain a sincere heart. You see, sincerity, and and this is something that, again, this might be just foreign to us, but sincerity goes above and beyond to love people. Sincerity does whatever it takes to love people. Those without sincere hearts might look at Luke emphasizing Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem, emphasizing Paul's request to speak to the people, emphasizing him speaking in the Hebrew language. Again, we think, what's the big deal? Why would you do this, Paul? And why is it important that he was speaking to them in Hebrew? We read that and we think there's nothing really there. It doesn't mean anything to us. But what Luke wants us to get is that Paul was going above and beyond to love these people. There are things that we can do to go above and beyond to reach people that may not be requirements, but they are really necessities if we're going to reach people. Remember that word, it is necessary? There might not be a verse in the Bible that says you better do this, 
but there's something in our hearts that says, I've got to do this. Do you see that? Only sincere hearts understand why you got to do it. So church, I want to say tonight before we move on, we need to pray for God to soften our hearts. You know, God will not plant in hard or dry ground. If you got to where it's just muddy, where it's just hard mud, you're not going to plant seeds there, right? God is not going to put a burden in a heart that's hard or dry. So we need to pray for God to do that. And Ezekiel says that he will cleanse our hearts. He will give us a new heart. He will give us a new spirit. He will give us a heart of flesh. So I say this with all kindness and with all urgency. If we don't have a heart of sincerity and this sort of compassion for those outside of Jesus, we are borderline delinquent in terms of being used by God. We can attend, we can tithe, we can possess knowledge, we can exhibit gifts, but if we lack this one thing, well, don't take my word for it. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong, I'm a clanging cymbal. If I have a prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have away and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, you know the man that wrote that is displaying for us what it means to love people, don't, don't you see? We have to repent and pray for God to restructure our faith if we don't have a loving, tender, sincere heart. Now what follows, and we'll close around this, what follows is Paul's testimony, which is really word for word what, he, what we read about in Acts 9, verses 3 through, chapter, through verses 16. Now we'll touch on a couple of things, but Paul details his radical allegiance to his nation and religion, how he was intently opposed to Christianity. Uh, verses 3 and 4, he tells them, hey, I am a Jew born under the Jewish law, raised in the Jewish religion. I was trained under one of the most esteemed Jewish teachers, Gamaliel. Um, and, and he says to them in verse 4 I persecuted the way I was so against Christianity I was attacking the church I was killing Christians and then he goes on to talk about what happened on the way to Damascus remember he was going to kill Christians in Damascus when Jesus met him on the way and I want to say this when you read Paul's testimony maybe you think well my story doesn't have that kind of power Listen, our testimonies have tremendous power if we make them all about God's grace. Now, your story might not be Paul's story, but regardless how your testimony plays out, if you understand God's grace is what saved you and you put total emphasis on God's grace and you testify about what God's grace has done for you, your testimony has as much power as Paul's did and still does. Now, we'll wrap things up down in verse 17. Paul talks about what happened when he came to Jerusalem right after he got saved. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So way back then, God told him, these people are not gonna listen to you, Paul. And, and listen to Paul's response, verse 19. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to him, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So that's why Paul left for the time that he did back in Acts 9. He doesn't come back to Jerusalem until 
now. But I, Paul's response to God is so incredible, and I want to wrap up by talking about this. Paul basically says to Jesus, Jesus, they know the man I used to be. How could they not believe in you after what you've done with me? So this is, this is the entire reason why Paul thought he could get through to these people. He says, Paul, Paul says, I was one of them. They know who I used to be. They saw me kill Christians. They watched me consent to the death of Stephen. They know who I used to be. How could they not believe in you after what you've done with me? Paul says, God, I, I'm the best example to these Jewish people because I was one of them. And how could they deny that you, that Jesus is your son and that Jesus is the Messiah after what he's done for me? I mean, come on, God, they know me as one of them, but 10 times worse. I was not just an anti-Christian. I mean, if there could have been an anti-Christ in these days, Paul would have been a candidate for it. Paul genuinely thought they would receive his word because he had made a 180 degree turn regarding Jesus. And he was living an example of how Jesus could transform a life. How could they deny that? You know what this reflects and reveals about Paul that might, not, that might be the most powerful message you'll ever read? No one was more shocked at Paul's salvation than Paul himself. Nobody was more shocked that Paul got saved than Paul, which is why he never gave up on anybody else. Do you see that? Now, I don't mean that Paul walked around remaining in guilt. He was free from condemnation, just like you can and just like you should be. But Paul lived every day with an authentic and earnest heart of worship for how God saved him because he knows on paper it didn't make sense. And you know what? It never will make sense. And if it ever does, we've missed the point of grace. I want to spend a few minutes unpacking this, though, marveling at this truth. Paul talks about all this throughout his letters, how shocked he was that God would save anyone like him, how, uh, how he was marveled at the goodness of God, but he also wrote with confidence that God can do and wants to do the same for everybody else. You see, this is the love of God. This is God's relentless love. It should humble us, but I think more importantly, it should assure us. I mean, how humbling it is to know that God loves us like that, but also how assuring it is to know that God loves us like that. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians that takes this to a whole other level, and I promise it'll bless your heart. Paul says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace. So he's telling his testimony over there in Galatians. You see what he says? When he set me apart before I was born. Now, do you know what Paul was from birth until Damascus? He was a violent and arrogant a blasphemous sinner. Yet God did not just enter his story at his new birth. God was in his story from the very beginning. And you know what? The same is true about you. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 
So God, before the foundation of the world, knew you and set you apart for him and made a plan for you to be holy and blameless through the death of his own son. God isn't just for us when we honor him. He's for us even when we dishonor him. That's how great his love is for us. You are set apart for salvation. You are set apart by God for salvation. He doesn't just wait on you to come to him. He relentlessly pursues you through it all. Isn't that insane? I mean, isn't that just too good? It gets even crazier. Galatians 1.16, Paul says, He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to the Gentiles. I mean, talk about scandal of grace. It, was, it pleased God to save Paul rather than judge Paul. I mean, Matt Chandler said it best. Saul of Tarsus is the guy that you would think God was preparing a drone strike for. I mean, when you hear the government say that we killed a terrorist who's on the number top 10 most wanted terrorist list, that's how dangerous Paul was to the early church. If the early church would have read in the newspaper, Saul of Tarsus has been killed, they would have celebrated because of how dangerous he was to them. He was knocking doors down. He was burning houses down. He was stripping people down. He was whipping them. He was chaining them. He was dragging them behind his carriage. He was bringing them to Jerusalem and murdering them. And that man is someone that God says it pleased me to reveal Jesus to him. You know what that means? That God was pleased to be patient with Paul as much as he was pleased to save Paul. I mean, if, if God has a time that he plans to enter our lives, and if God is working the entire story out for his glory, God does not, is not just pleased when we get it right. He's pleased through the whole process because God is at work in it all. You know what that is? You know what? There is no other way you can describe that except that God is gracious and merciful to every sinner. You see, it doesn't make sense to us. We cannot fathom how God could be pleased to save someone who was as awful as a person as Paul. If you, if you thought you had God's love figured out, this just blows it out and makes us just step back and say, I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it at all. God was at work through it all in order that Paul might be called to the Gentiles. The Jews may not have been convinced by his testimonies, but the Gentiles would. Why was Paul the perfect candidate to reach the Gentiles? Because he was an insider who was far from God, was forgiven and saved. And in that same way, the Gentiles might know that they could be saved too. What's even more remarkable is how, Paul, how God redeemed every bit of Paul's story for his glory taking Saul, the opponent of the church, and making him the greatest advocate it ever knew. You see how God flipped the entire story around? God brought this man in who was this leader of the opposition team and made him the leader of the whole church. You know what that tells me about God and what God can do with your life and God can do with anybody's life? The parts of Paul that the enemy had weaponized for evil, God rewired and redeemed for his glory. You see that? What, what, what made Paul such a weapon 
against the church. He was a leader. He was passionate. He was zealous. And God took those same things that were for evil and he rewired them for him. That not only does God forgive our sin, but God takes the devil's weapons and turns them against him. Paul's mistakes and Paul's messes prepared the way for his mission and his message. Do you see that? There would be no mission had there not been those mistakes. There would be no message had there not been the mess that he made. Now, this is not me saying, hey, go out and sin all you want to because God's going to redeem it. This is just me saying that God is sovereign and his grace is so much greater than you can ever imagine. And the same can be true for every one of you. Paul was convinced that his story could inspire anybody because his story was proof that God could save anybody. Do you know that God has set you apart from, for him from the beginning? You aren't a bother to God. When you were sinning and enjoying it, I'm not saying that God was happy about it. He wasn't. It broke his heart. It killed Jesus. That's why Jesus died because of our sin. But while you were sinning, what does Romans say? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You're not a bother to God. It pleases God to pursue you and repurpose you. How in the world could God see through our sin and see our destination? I don't understand it, but that's how loving God is. That's, that's God's relentless love, how marvelous and how blessed we are. And as he used Paul, he can use us, redeeming everything we bring to him, even the things you're ashamed to bring to him, God can redeem that too. No matter your past, God sees it as a pathway. You know, when it dawns on us what God has done for us, we'll be convinced that he can do it for anybody and driven to see him do it. You see that last part? That's the big, as important. When it dawns on you what God's done for you, you'll be convinced he can do it for anybody, but you'll more importantly be driven to see him do it for them. The devil will try to use religion to freeze you. He'll try to use guilt to stop you. But may we allow God's redemption to have its, have its perfect work. So I want us to ask together in closing, would you ask God to take what he set apart and what he's been pleased to orchestrate in your life and use that for his glory? Would you ask God to give you a heart of love as equal to the heart that he has for you? Would you ask God to make his grace real to you and show you just how loving and how gracious he has been to you? And would you allow God to rewire and repurpose and redeem your story? Because whether you believe it or not, God has been in your story through every season, through every sin, through every moment. God has been there saying, I can use this. And when, when we wrap our minds around that, we'll be as resilient as Paul and as driven as Paul and see every opportunity like he did to see somebody learn about God's grace, how it changed us, how it can change them. Thank you, church, for being with us tonight. I pray this blesses your heart as much as it has pulled on mine and made an impact on mine. How amazing God's grace really is. Let me pray for you.
Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight. Thank you for your amazing grace. We cannot understand it. We do not deserve it. But you are so good. You're so much better than we thought you were. You're so much kinder and loving than we thought you were. God, help us just to get an ounce of this. Help us just to get an idea of this. Help us to see the grace that you've given us. And Lord, would you drive us to show that, for other, show that to other people and to see you change others' lives the same way you've changed ours. It's by your grace that we have been saved. And it's by the grace that others can be as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.